This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Indian Child Welfare Act faces a serious challenge in the U.S. Supreme Court. The National Congress of American Indians says ICWA calls it a coordinated, well-financed attack on tribal rights. Tribal sovereignty is also on the line in a handful of other Supreme Court arguments involving gaming and jurisdiction. We'll hear what they are and discuss the current makeup of the court from a Native perspective. That's coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Tribal leaders from New Mexico and Colorado were among those to testify Tuesday before the House Natural Resources Committee on Tribal Co-Management of Federal Lands. Leaders from the Zuni and Southern Ute tribes say Native people have deep connections to the land and have long been stewards using their traditional knowledge. Lawmakers heard how the taking of traditional homelands and federal management has impacted sacred areas, including Bears Ears in Utah. Lieutenant Governor Carlton Bawakati of the Pueblo of Zuni is co-chair of the Bears Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. He says tribes are eager to work with federal agencies in the management of the sacred area after protections were restored to Bears Ears National Monument by the Biden administration last year. And he says tribes are approaching management from a cultural landscape perspective. Knowledge of an area that has ancestral ties is important. And when we have that responsibility, we can't let that go. However, the government always treats it as, well, this is a project. Here's this location. How is it affected? When we know that in our approach with the Bears Ears and Tribal Coalition has been really the 1.9 million acres. We understand that in the end, the proclamation states 1.36. However, we are still looking that looking at that as an entire landscape. So those are some of the things that when we're doing our land management planning process, that is what we hope will inform the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service and how we can accomplish that. Speaking with the Forest Service and the BLM, they are experts in their processes. However, it's always absent from the tribal Bawakati says it's crucial for younger generations to be involved in the management of lands. Bears Ears landscape and the essential ties that we have have allowed us to reconnect. And what I mean and I need for our younger generations to understand is that their existence is bigger than the reservation. When we speak to the things that we want for them and the continuance of traditional ecological knowledge, they are the ones that are going to continue it for us. We can want it for them as tribal leaders but we can't force it down them. They have to want it for themselves. And if they don't want it for themselves, we see the spiritual repercussions they have. Bawakati says dedicated funding is needed for ongoing co-management efforts. Democratic lawmakers on the committee pledged their support. The hearing was held in two parts and also explored legal support for tribal co-management. First Lady Jill Biden was greeted by tribal leaders and tribal citizens of the Tohono O'odham Nation during a visit to the reservation in Arizona on Tuesday. Her visit, along with Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, was part of the Biden administration's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, an effort to reduce cancer death rates. The First Lady spoke about the administration's cancer initiative, expressing how it's personal after her son's death from cancer. Here's part of her remarks from local news station Kega 9. Joe is totally committed to this. Um, I've been traveling the last couple months all across America to look at what 
what's new in cancer in research. Look, meet with navigators. Look at rural programs. Look at programs in the cities. And of course, I would come here and look at uh, programs for uh, Native Americans. The First Lady and Secretary learned about the Tribes Cancer Program and Services, which includes a partnership with the University of Arizona Cancer Center. The Cancer Center partners with tribal communities across the state on training, research, and outreach programs for Native Americans. In Idaho, the Fort Hall Business Council is requesting the Pocatello School District change its graduation attire policy to allow Native American students to wear cultural and religious items to graduation. School policy prohibits students from wearing eagle feathers or beaded caps to ceremonies. The Shoshone-Bannock tribes wrote a letter to the district, and a Native Parent Education Committee has proposed a draft policy. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Native American Disability Law Center, a non-for-profit 501c3 at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The current U.S. Supreme Court session could be like no other when it comes to Native legal issues. First, the new makeup of the nine justices makes any predictions for outcomes impossible. Some of the newer justices don't have much of a track record when it comes to Indian law. And with that backdrop, the High Court is hearing a serious challenge to the 44-year-old Indian Child Welfare Act. The National Congress of American Indians says the far-reaching consequences of this case will be felt for generations. The Supreme Court is also hearing other cases this session that have to do with tribal sovereignty, one about gaming in a state that specifically prohibits it, another about the validity of a tribal court conviction and sentence. We'll hear about those and get an update on the ongoing challenges to the landmark McGirt ruling in Oklahoma. Please join today's U.S. Supreme Court discussion by calling in 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. On our show today, We have three people who have spoken about legal matters on Native America Calling before, and we very much appreciate their insights and expertise. Matthew Fletcher is a law professor at Michigan State University's College of Law and author of the Turtle Talk blog. He's a citizen of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians, and he's joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome back to NAC, Matthew. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Sarah Kostelik is the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. She's a Lutic, and she's joining us from Portland, Oregon. Welcome back to NAC as well, Sarah. Good morning, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. And joining us from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Sarah Hill. She's the attorney general for the Cherokee Nation, and she's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Welcome back to NAC, Sarah. 
Well, Sarah, it looks like we're having a little bit of a delay with Sarah Hill. So Sarah Castellic, please, um, let's start off with ICWA and what's at stake for Native American children and families. What's at the heart of what's been called this coordinated and well-financed attack on tribal rights? Thanks, John. Yeah, we learned last week that the Supreme Court accepted review of the Bracken v. Holland case, um, a case in which the state of Texas and a handful of non-Native foster parents uh, sued the U.S. government, sued the Department of Interior over the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. So they made a variety of claims um, related to uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, allegedly violating the U.S. Constitution. So kind of threw the spaghetti at the wall, a handful of claims to see what stuck. And uh, this case has been working its way through the federal district court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, for both a three-judge panel hearing and then an en banc ruling uh, last spring. And uh, now we find ourselves at the Supreme Court. So um, there's a lot at stake here. Uh, it was really facing the ultimate challenge. As you said, this law has been around for 44 years, widely considered to be the gold standard of child welfare policy and practice, uh, widespread bipartisan support, uh, you know, looking at state child welfare agencies, members of Congress, a really uh, widespread support for this legislation and uh, a lot at stake with Supreme Court review. Now, sir, ICWA was enacted in 1978, as we mentioned, and how many times since then has it been challenged? So the Supreme Court uh, heard two prior ICWA cases in 1989, uh, Mississippi Choctaw v. Uh, Holyfield, and then most recently in 2013, Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl. And those cases were, uh, were somewhat different. They were um, centered around um, placement decisions regarding particular Indian children. And uh, this case, as we know, is, um, is more broadly about the provisions of the, the law and whether they're constitutional. So the opponents in this case are, uh, are really um, attacking tribal sovereignty at its core. Uh, they're questioning the political relationship between tribal citizens and tribal nations and uh, the authority of tribes to be involved in decisions regarding their citizen children. Okay, let's bring Sarah Hill into the conversation. And Sarah, you are the Attorney General for Cherokee Nation. I'm sorry we weren't able to connect earlier in the show, but again, welcome to the show, Native America Calling. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Sarah, um, Cherokee Nation, one of the original defendants in the Brackeen case, uh, this is a family down in Fort Worth, Texas, that sued, um, invoked this lawsuit claiming racial discrimination with regards to how um, ICWA is, um, has been enacted and how it impacts uh, non-Native families that want to adopt Native people. So how, how did this all come about? What is Cherokee's argument in this case? Because the, the, the children of these, these children are actually part Cherokee, are they not? They are part Cherokee, um, and that's how the Cherokee Nation originally became involved in this case. And, you know, the Cherokee Nation is um, a very large tribe, and we get involved in lots of different cases throughout the United States. And, you know, as many times the Indian Child Welfare Act has been in the past attacked, it's never constitutionally, it's never um, had any issues. It's always been found to be constitutional. So it was surprising that in this particular case um, that, that the issue was, was raised in the way that it was. 
I think what's also interesting about this case and this child, the child involved in the case initially was both Navajo and Cherokee, was eligible for more than one tribe, which is the case, you know, with many children. Um, in this particular case, that is now going before the Supreme Court, I think it's interesting for people to know that this case has nothing to do. These children who are involved in this case have already been adopted. Um, the, the, their adoptions are final, and so there's no child's placement that's at stake in this case, and there hasn't been any placement at stake in this case in a very long time. Um, and despite that fact, we still find ourselves you know, in front of the Supreme Court challenging the very foundations um, in some ways of uh, certainly the foundations of the Indian Child Welfare Act. In some ways, it challenges many of the foundations of uh, federal Indian law as it has developed um, over the past few decades in the Supreme Court in a case where there's really no longer anything um, at stake for any of the children or the original litigants who are involved in the case, you know, regarding those particular facts. So I think that this case is sort of unique in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, this current challenge is obviously a lot bigger than this one family down in Texas and their efforts to adopt these two children. And uh, Sarah Hill, what do you think it says uh, to the Supreme Court that Cherokee Nation is supporting the defense of ICWA? I mean, the Cherokee Nation has definitely been here before, um, defending both Indian children, the, the parents of Indian children, and, and the act. This is something that the, the nation has put a significant amount of time and energy into making sure that, I mean, it is a an existential issue. Um, it will always is for tribes. We don't we will not continue to exist if we are not able to protect our children and keep them in our tribes. Um, so, I mean, this is something that to us seems like a it has something that must be defended. Is this, isn't an option for us to stand back and say, well, we'll let these we'll let these equal issues. <laughs> this is a really very important case for Indian country and for the Cherokee Nation. Okay, let's go back to Sarah Castellic. And Sarah, I'm curious, who are these forces actively working against ICWA? I know fingers have been pointed at some private adoption agencies. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of folks here. We see a confluence of political agendas, we would say. So, you know, the state of Texas who brought the suit, the handful of non-native foster parents involved, um, you know, Goldwater Institute, a conservative think tank in Arizona, has also been involved in uh, more than a dozen uh, cases related to ICWA state and federal cases, either as a party or filing amicus briefs. So there really are a number of players coming together here in a well-orchestrated, well-funded attack on ICWA. And um, as Sarah Hill was saying, you know, ICWA is the face of this um, movement uh, right now, this anti-sovereignty um, movement, but uh, we know that there are really other motives here. So uh, we see motives to overturn tribal rights for profit, to access tribal lands, natural resources, um, really ultimately to dismantle the future existence of tribal nations uh, by removing protections for their youngest generations now. So there really is a much larger picture here, and ICWA is the face of it now, but we know that that's, um, that's just this moment in time, that there's really a much more substantial agenda here. Okay. And, and Sarah, you know, ICWA, going back almost 45 years now, and, and this goal of giving priority and adoptions of Native American children to Native families, uh, and, and, you know, I read statistics that even with ICWA in place, uh, Native children are still disproportionately taken from, from families, uh, according to data. So why is that? Why is ICWA just not working as well as it should be? Yeah, 
you know, you, you point to the statistics here, Sean, and that's an important thing to take a look at. We know that Native families are four times more likely to have their children removed and placed in foster care than their white counterparts. Um, and so this really is um, a, a very um, critical issue at this moment in time. This is affecting thousands of Native children and their families. Um, and we know there is bias in the system. Uh, there is uh, evidence to support that. Uh, and we know that um, in many places, states and tribes are still trying to work together to better implement the federal law. I mean, it really is staggering that although the law has been around for, for almost 45 years, that there are still plenty of uh, state uh, child welfare workers, uh, judges who are still learning about ICWA for the first time. So because in many places, there aren't a substantial number of cases involving Native children. Uh, child welfare workers may not be familiar with the requirements of the law. You know, I've had a, a judge call NICWA before um, and put us on speakerphone in open court and ask the question, what is this ICWA anyway? And what does it mean we have to do? Uh, so unfortunately, although it's been around for a long time, there's still a whole lot of education uh, that we need to do about proper implementation of the law. So I think those mm -hmm. are a few things at play here. We're talking Native legal issues today, Indian Child Welfare Act, gaming, jurisdiction of tribal courts, and other pressing arguments facing the current session of the Supreme Court. As always, we welcome questions and comments from all points of view on Native America Calling. So what are you waiting for? Give us a holler. The number, 1-800-996-2848. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We're back live after this short break. March is a time for tournaments, trophies, and long-standing rivalries on basketball courts all over the country. We'll check in on some standout Native teams and players, hear about some inspiring accomplishments, and learn about what goes into success in a sport so important to Native communities. That's on the next Native America Calling. you're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're getting an update on cases heading to the U.S. Supreme Court that have significant implications for Native Americans. And of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts. Please join the discussion by calling in 1-800-996-2848. On our show today, we have two Sarahs. Uh, so I <clears throat> hope it's not too confusing. We have Sarah Costellic in Portland, Oregon, and Sarah Hill down in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And Sarah Hill, I have a question for you specifically. The Brackeen case, uh, what kind of traction is it gaining in Oklahoma right now? 
You know, I don't know that it is getting the same amount of traction as it maybe would in a different time. There's a lot of Indian country issues in Oklahoma that are really um, circulating and a lot of interest in talking about criminal justice in the wake of McGirt. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of interest in talking about Indian country issues. But I don't know. I think the Brackeen cases, aside from people, you know, I think Indian people understand what's going on um, more so. But as, in terms of Oklahoma generally, I don't know that it has been a very hot topic, which is, you know, kind of interesting, really. Well, let's bring in another legal perspective. Matthew Fletcher, he's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's a law professor. Matthew, what is the timeline for this ICPA challenge? I mean, oral arguments, uh, when are we expecting a decision? Fill us in. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the Supreme Court, um, they don't work in the summertime. They're like me. They're academics. So um, <laughs> they will complete their term at the end of June. Uh, briefing for the Brackeen case probably won't be completed until uh, the summertime. So we anticipate that oral arguments at the earliest would start in October, which is when the court begins its uh, fall term. And then once argument is completed, it would probably be another four to six months before we get an opinion. And if the court is um, hilariously interested in writing a 325-page opinion, which is what the lower court did, then it might take a little bit longer. Wow. There was a mixed ruling in a lower court that deemed at least part of ICWA unconstitutional. Can you clarify that ruling more? I'll try. It's really difficult. There were. Um, it's a very special kind of hearing where all of the judges in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard the case, um, and there are 16 of those judges that heard the case. So um, the vast majority of issues relating to um, the constitutionality of ICWA the, that court split eight to eight. So one side assigned a judge to write what ended up being about 120, 140-page opinion, uh, arguing the position that ICWA was a, was a constitutional enactment. And the other side identified another judge um, to write an, another 100-page opinion saying it's unconstitutional. And then another half a dozen judges contributed shorter opinions um, articulating their specific views. And uh, the range of constitutional questions really ran a gamut that we, we have not normally seen. Something like four or five uh, clear constitutional issues were at play. Now, keep in mind, the Fifth Circuit did all of this work knowing, as Sarah Hill pointed out, there actually is no case in here. It is a complete sham. The adoptions are all done. There is nothing, nothing will happen as a result of this decision. Um, in constitutional law, we call an opinion like that an advisory opinion, and you're not allowed to do advisory opinions in federal courts unless you have the votes to do an advisory opinion, but that's where we are. So is this just uh, political wrangling, you think, that's getting this much attention and this much focus with regard to, to uh, excuse me, with regard to this Brackeen issue right now, you think? Yeah, unfortunately, um, there's a confluence of political forces that really don't have much to do with Indian law. Um, you have judges that uh, now constitute a majority of the judges on the Fifth Circuit who are uh, Trump and Bush appointees who are radical, radical, appoint, uh, radical political actors who are looking for uh, all sorts of things. They're looking to strike down abortion. They're looking to strike down affirmative action. They're looking to restrict, to strike down statutes that are supportive of human rights for immigrants. They're looking to strike down statutes that are supportive of criminal defendants. They're looking to strike down voting rights. Um, anything related to civil rights, it is in their crosshairs, and they're going out of their way uh, 
um, to attack those statutes. ICWA just happens to be a civil rights statute, um, and it's that the court there is looking for a reason to get rid of those statutes. So that 325-page opinion I referenced is has very little law in it, surprisingly. It is very much a political manifesto um, from both sides, to be frank. frank. And normally the Supreme Court doesn't play those sorts of games, but uh, maybe they will now. Okay. Well, that's a lot of ink there, 300-plus pages for sure. <laughs> uh, we have a caller on the line, Elizabeth. She is listening online in Arizona. Elizabeth, you are on Native America Calling. Yes, thank you. Um, I I totally support ICWA because, you know, I understand that, you know, back in, I don't know what years, we had a lot of missionaries or um, other religious groups that took, took our Indian children, and they never got to know their culture. Our Native American culture is very important, and our tribal unique cultures are very important for our kids to keep um, learning and to keep going. I have a situation, though, where me and my daughter are enrolled Gila River Indian community here in Arizona, but my three grandchildren are enrolled Nespers in Idaho. And I'm surprised. I was very, We were very lucky that the tribal court let us take them here to Phoenix because this is where we live and we're professional workers. But now my grandchildren are caught up in a – they're kind of in limbo where the state can't help us because – it's an Idaho court that has them, a tribal court that they don't recognize. And then there's no but no tribe here in, in Arizona that can help us because our kids are enrolled Nespers. Um, I've been trying to look for help, and no one knows how to help and answer questions we have. There's no support system out there, and if there is, I'd really like to know where this support system is for grandparents and, and people like me that, yes, my kids, my grandkids are important, but I didn't want to have them stay on the Nespers reservation, living in a, a foster home or a children's home when they could be with us and be safe and, and cared for and loved. Um, so sure. there's two sides to the ICWA thing when you, it, it almost constrains that family member that they have to live within the reservation boundaries or close to that reservation, which isn't always the case. Yeah, Elizabeth, thank you for that call. And and again, just illustrating your own experience, the, the complexities behind how ICWA works. And Sarah Costellic, please, could you respond to that? You know, she Elizabeth asked for, for resources or information for folks who can learn more about ICWA and just how to navigate some of these complexities when, when handling these issues amongst family and, and, and children in their own households. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we do at NICWA that we've done since we were established almost 40 years ago is to actually take calls from families who are struggling with navigating the child welfare system. So every year we respond to about a thousand phone calls, emails, Facebook posts, um, you know, messages on social media with families who are trying to figure out uh, how to navigate the system, what supports and resources are available, what role might their tribe be, uh, what role might their tribe play, where else can they get help? Um, and so, uh, so NICWA does respond to those phone calls. And we do have a variety of 
resources for families on our website. So we have a, a guide to the Indian Child Welfare Act on our website. We have some public service announcements that provide some guidance to parents about different aspects of the child welfare system. So, so we can be a resource to families. We think that's critically important, not only to do the policy work and defend ICWA, uh, not only to influence social work practice, but to also provide uh, direct support to families. Okay, thank you for that information, Sarah. And um, obviously, we're going to talk about other issues besides just ICWA, but I would like to give Sarah Hill a chance to comment. Sarah, do you have any more uh, thoughts or insights to offer with regard to ICWA on our show today? Um, I, I think that one of the things that your caller reminded me of is that, you know, sometimes people wonder how can they how can they protect uh, Indian children, how can they support ICWA. And if you're a tribal citizen, I think the best way you can protect Indian children is to volunteer to become a foster parent if that's something that you can do. Um, there are a lot of, of grannies and aunties and uh, friends and relatives who step in and take children into their custody. And, you know, ICWA as a law is not that helpful if we don't have um, Indian placements for these children. And so of all the things that I think that we do on the government side, the, the the thing that I find the most encouraging and the most hopeful is always the number of people who step up to be foster parents. So if I had one message to send out, I think that would be it. Okay. Thank you, Sarah Hill. Uh, Matthew, another case uh, out of Texas going to the Supreme Court is this conflict over state law and a tribe's intent to pursue gaming. What do you know about this case? Yeah, so the um, in the 1980s, shortly after the Supreme Court decided the big Indian gaming case, California versus Cabazon Band, the um, Congress re restored two Indian tribes uh, from from their termination status: the Isleta del Sur Pueblo and the Alabama Cushata tribe. Now, the Isleta del and the, the what the what the uh, Restoration Act does is is sort of incorporates. The idea, the theory in the Cabazon Ban decision, as well as what would become the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which was that the tribe could engage in, in bingo, so long as uh, a form of bingo was legal within the state of Texas. But the Restoration Act um, has some ambiguities in it. It says that Texas has the power to bring a claim to enforce um, a, uh, an act against in federal court against the tribes if they engage in bingo that Texas thinks is illegal. So fast forward uh, decades to the point where Texas has won every single lower court decision on that question. Um, Texas believes that if, uh, if you engage in a bingo activity that leads to um, profit, it is illegal in Texas. And only not-for-profit bingo is legal. Um, naturally, Isleta del Sur and Alabama Cushada want to engage in high-stakes Class II-style bingo because they need it desperately for governmental revenue. Um, after a few decades of losing over and over again in court, um, the United States jumped in on this case and said, wait, the, the tribe is actually right. Uh, the statute uh, gives tribes, uh, those tribes in Texas through the Restoration Act, the equivalent of, of Class II-style gaming rights uh, under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. So there's a conflict in the courts as to, in the Supreme Court now, as to which side is correct, Texas or the tribes, and the tribes, of course, being backed by the United States. Now, Class II gaming, we're talking bingo, right? That's right. You know, kind of the the kind of slot machine style uh, video or electronic bingo that, um, you know, people like to play that in some respects is uh, indistinguishable from actual slot machines. 
Matthew, could a decision from this case affect Indian gaming overall? Well, you know, I would have thought not. Um, it seems like it's confined to the federal statute that relates to these two specific tribes. But at oral argument, um, some of the justices were asking questions that um, no party briefed, but uh, were very concerning. One of those questions was, um, if, it, if it's true that Congress did try to incorporate principles of in legal interpretation from Cabazon, then maybe Justice Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch mused, perhaps we should just overrule Cabazon. Um, it, overruling Cabazon is really not the issue in this case. And uh, like I said, Cabazon is a critically important statute, or excuse me, decision that sort of gave rise to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. It was the canvas upon which Congress was painting, so to speak, when it enacted IGRA. So that actually led the government's attorney, the United States attorney in this case, to say, wow, out loud, as in, as in I can't believe you asked me that question. <laughs> um, another <laughs> justice, Justice Alito, uh, brought up the, uh, the notion that perhaps the canons of construction that we often rely upon that, um, you know, so if a federal, if Congress passes a law to benefit a tribe, it should be interpreted to the benefit of the tribe. Um, Justice Alito wanted to know where that came from. And he said it seemed antithetical to, to, way, to the way he understands um, text should be read. And unfortunately, the United States attorney had no answer for that and had no idea where the canons of construction come from or how old they are. Incidentally, they go back to at least the 1830s, but set that aside. So I would have said at the beginning, you know, uh, two weeks ago, this case doesn't have a huge impact except on those two tribes. Um, but you know, depending on where the court goes, who writes the opinion, there could be some pretty interesting and, and even scary language in the actual outcome. Well, and, and what you say really underscores just the complexities of Indian law and, and really what sounds like some confusion on the high court for, for how to preside over some of these issues. Uh, we have another caller on the line, Melvin. He's one of our regulars. He's listening on KZYK, or excuse me, KZYK in Santee, Nebraska. Melvin, you're on the air. Well, I have two questions now. One is with Class 2 gaming that uses that bingo ball system. Uh, we don't have cards or roulette or any of that at our casino because of Class 2. But my first question was uh, the Indian Gaming Act. Uh, I live at Santee, across the river, South Dakota, 75 miles east of Iowa. And we have uh, our ICWA workers. Uh, a lot of times they don't know, because each state has different interpretations of the law. Okay, I think we lost Melvin there. Uh, question or comment regarding ICWA workers and um, different state laws. And uh, Sarah Hill, could you comment on that with regard? You know, essentially, like comments to how is ICWA really? How does it work? I mean, how do the how are these uh, adoptions placed? And and who are the partners or the organizations that are working to ensure that these adoptions go to native relatives or families? So the the big 
It's a little bit different depending on, you know, where the adoption or the case arises. So you have some states that have state laws that support ICWA, like Oklahoma does. It has the Oklahoma Indian Child Welfare Act, which provides under state law some additional protections that children would not have in other states. Um, and, if, of course, if a child is – if the case arises on a reservation or in Indian country, then the case is typically handled directly by the tribe. So it, it varies a little bit. But by and large, the way that it works is when a case in a state court, let's say – so if you're in Oklahoma in a state court and a case arises, there's a notice provision. So the, the state court, whoever it is that's seeking the adoption or who has taken the child into custody, has to send notice to the child's tribe. And when the tribe gets that notice, at the Cherokee Nation, what we would do is we'll take the notice, we'll respond to the state court and say, okay, yeah, we're, we're this child's tribe. We're going to intervene in your state case and we're going to become involved in it. And when we're involved, then we can begin to look at, we have an internal database of tribal citizens who we know are willing and able to take children um, either as an adoptive parent or a foster parent. And we also do a due diligence search of the child's relatives and say, okay, let's talk to the maybe a, a parent who isn't involved in this case or to grandparents, aunts, uncles. Let's talk to all the relatives and see if there's a relative who would be willing to take placement of this child. So a lot of the footwork gets done by the tribe itself who intervenes in the case and then goes about the process of finding being um, a relative. Now, I should say the law doesn't require the tribe to do any of that. It's really up to the state officers and the state officials, the, the court itself, to oversee that and make sure the okay. children are placed. It's We're going to have to go ahead and go to break. I'm going to let you finish that thought, Sarah. We'll be back right after a short break. You're listening to the America Calling. Support by Amerind. Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Do you have concerns for the future of the Indian Child Welfare Act? Should tribal courts have the final say for some criminal convictions? Those are among the issues that the U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to tackle this session. Please weigh in with your comments at 1-800-996-2848. And Sarah Hill, I'm, I'm sorry we had to cut you short uh, before our break. My apologies. But you were talking about the adoptions of Native children under ICWA. Could you please continue your thoughts? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the only two points I think left to make are that, you know, I was the point I was making was that the law places the burden on the, the person seeking the adoption to, to show that they've done all of those things, that they've tried to place the children with relatives. Uh, but the tribe, in our case, does a lot of that heavy lifting as well, because it's important to us to see that that work get done. And state courts, uh, depending on the state, aren't always great at doing it. Um, and also the cases arise in all states. So we have Cherokee children living in Idaho, then we get notice of those and we intervene in those cases as well. So regardless of what state they live in in the United States right now, that notice requirement helps the tribe make sure that the law is being complied with. Okay. Sarah, the McGirt decision continues to make headlines, and we've talked about McGirt on the show before. 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that the reservation of the Muskogee Nation was never disestablished. It's had a huge impact, not only in Oklahoma, with regard to how criminal cases can be prosecuted, but other parts of Indian country as well. Please, can you give us some updates on, on what's going on with McGirt now? 
Sure. I mean, that's a, a really big question. Um, there's a lot going on in the in Oklahoma, um, especially, and I can only really speak to what's going on in Oklahoma. So that's where I spend my time. Um, but the tribes have been really busy since uh, McGirt was decided. The five tribes in particular, but really multiple tribes in Oklahoma, have been really busy increasing the size and the quality of their tribal courts uh, because the cases have really just exploded. I know in previous years, so in 2019, I think the tribe filed around 67 criminal cases for the year, um, we filed over 3,000 cases um, just in 2021, and, and we didn't even have the entire year where we were implementing McGirt in the Cherokee Nation. So we went from having one criminal prosecutor uh, that having eight full-time criminal prosecutors. So the, the change in the scope of tribal justice has really been incredible. Um, and it's not, of course, not just been that way at the Cherokee Nation, but it, and all of the tribes in Oklahoma have been in different ways standing up these really robust criminal justice systems. And that's been a, a lot of change in Oklahoma. And we've also seen, um, you know, the case, a case from Oklahoma, the Castro Huerta case, go back up to the Supreme Court. Um, the state was seeking to overturn the McGirt decision altogether, wanted the court to overturn it. But the court declined to hear, has declined to hear uh, the McGirt issue, but decided it was interested in hearing whether a the state would have concurrent jurisdiction over non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians um, in Indian country. So that issue is going up to, uh, to the Supreme Court now. Now, could a decision in this case, could it undo this landmark ruling with regard to jurisdiction in Oklahoma, do you think? It could not. Uh, one of the, the things about it, the, the court, A, specifically rejected the opportunity to, to rehear McGirt in its entirety. It just wasn't interested in doing that. And even the issue in front of the court, whether or not the state would have concurrent jurisdiction in certain circumstances in Indian country, you know, it presupposes that we're in Indian country when this case arose. So I think the, the main holding of McGirt, that the Creek Reservation was established and never disestablished and remains a reservation, um, that key holding will remain intact. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Matthew, you as well. Could you weigh in on, on your thoughts about the McGirt ruling currently? Yeah, I, um, I'm feeling pretty confident that uh, McGirt itself, the main thrust of it, um, is in, in, is safe. Um, and that's a huge that's a huge win. Oklahoma had um, done something that I'm not sure is precedented in the history of the Supreme Court, where it filed dozens upon dozens of cert petitions, sort of um, impetuously instructing the court to take these cases and reverse McGirt. Um, there was no law in those petitions. There was simply uh, a bunch of citations to newspaper articles and op-eds saying how terrible things are, and they were pure the acts of pure politics that, like I said before, the Supreme Court normally does not engage in. And happily, the Supreme Court rejected all of those petitions, but um, it did grant the one petition in uh, the case uh, Castro Huerta that um, where Oklahoma is making a fairly unprecedented claim that it would still have the power to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes within Indian country when the when the victim is a, an Indian person. Um, there's not a lot of support for that, but uh, we're going to hear the arguments anyway, um, probably next term in the, in the fall. Okay. Matthew, Dinespi versus United States is another, uh, another case going up before the court uh, in which a citizen of the Navajo Nation claims he was tried and sentenced twice for the same crime, uh, double jeopardy, right? Can you talk about that? 
Sure thing. So uh, there are these things in Indian country called courts of Indian defenses. Um, usually they're referred to as CFR co courts. CFR stands for the Code of Federal Regulations. These courts were are actually courts created by Indian agents and Indian uh, Office of Indian Agent uh, Indian Affairs superintendents in the 1880s. And the idea then was we need to have courts in Indian country to control Indians, to keep them from practicing their religion and doing things like that we Americans don't want them to do. Um, sometime in the 60s and 70s, uh, for the most part, those CFR courts sort of disappeared. Um, for, but uh, the ones that remain are ones that tribes have taken over, that they might be called a CFR court or a court of Indian offenses. They may be... Um, you know, operated by employees of the federal government still, but they are tribal courts for all practical purposes. And uh, so the case is a bit of an esoteric one. This guy, Dennis P., was prosecuted by the Ute Mountain Ute through, the, through its CFR court, and then later on was prosecuted for the same crime by the federal government. So when the tribe prosecuted him, he, he got 140 days of jail time. The feds are seeking something like two decades worth of jail time. Um, it's a it's a double jeopardy claim because the Dines P is making the argument that the Court of Indian Offenses or the CFR Court actually is the federal government, and that a second subsequent federal prosecution is uh, therefore uh, prohibited by the double jeopardy clause. So double jeopardy, for those of you who don't know, is the pro the rule that you can't be prosecuted twice for the same crime. Okay. It's also made a great subject of a lot of really cool movies and TV shows, I might add, Double Jeopardy. Uh, Sarah, any precedent for this type of case that, that uh, Matthew just described, Denespi for United, uh, versus United States? I, you know, the Cherokee Nation has long had um, a tribal court, and so my interactions with the CFR courts um, has been pretty limited. But I have always understood, and I think most people who have any familiarity with Indian law have always understood the courts of Indian offenses to get their authority from the tribe and not from the federal government. So um, although understanding the facts of the case, I understand why this issue has been raised. I do not, um, just like as in Castro Huerta, there's no there is no law that really contradicts that understanding, and that has long been the understanding of the law that, uh, that only the United States could exercise jurisdiction over non-Indians who committed crimes against Indians. Likewise, I think in this case, it's very clear that, that the CFR courts um, derive their authority from the tribes. And I think there's lots of historical – if you look back at the creation of the courts, what was going on in, in Indian law at that time, I just think it's extremely clear. I, I completely agree with Matt that it's, it's clear that that's the case. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the court makeup. And Matthew, earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, the strong conservative constituents that are that are on that bench right now with the current Supreme Court. Uh, you know, the, the Biden administration uh, in the process of nominating uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who is a, a, a left leaning um, judge, uh, could change the makeup of the court. Any thoughts on where the court's going in terms of, of its makeup right now with response to Democrats and Republicans? So, you know, the way the, the what the court does is that right now it's a six to three uh, Republican majority over, over Democratic appointees. So um, that doesn't mean that it's going to be six to three in every case, but it does sort of give you a sense of where the court is. It's a very conservative court. 
Um, it has gotten conservative with virtually every, more more conservative with virtually every appointment for the past 15 years or so, um, for at least for the past 10 years or so. It is probably the most conservative Supreme Court in the history of the United States. Um, uh, Judge Katanji Judge, um, Brown uh, Jackson Brown could uh, could Brown Jackson, excuse me, um, is. Uh, is really exciting for me as a judge, uh, as a possibility on the Supreme Court. She'll be replacing Justice Breyer, who was, um, you know, to put it candidly, he was sort of a non-entity when it came to Indian law. He, when, when I looked at his record after he announced his retirement, I found out that really he just votes with majority in almost every case. He very wrote, sep very rarely wrote separately. Didn't really seem to have um, all that much passion for Indian law, one way or the other. And uh, as I said in my blog, I didn't, he didn't seem like a sovereignty warrior, but he was no Andrew Jackson Indian fighter either. either. And I think uh, <laughs> Justice Brown Jackson could be our uh, another sovereignty warrior for us. Um, Justice Sotomayor truly is a, a historic sovereignty warrior. Justice Gorsuch has leaned in that direction as well. Uh, but really what the court is generally, and this is true for all of them, is what they're what we call a textualist court. This is the kind of Supreme Court that will look at a statute and uh, pretend it's not looking at anything else but the actual words on the page. It doesn't look at the political context. It doesn't like to look at uh, the public policy, the, the outcomes, what will actually happen if they rule in a certain direction. They say, we're judges, we look at the law with blinders on, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we know truly that that is almost never the case. You know, In abortion cases, there's not much text to look at, so they just vote their politics. Same with other areas like affirmative action and voting rights. Um, but in Indian law, and you know the, the McGirt case is a great example of this, we like textualists in Indian country because all they get to do is look at the, the, the treaties, the federal statutes. They apply default interpretive rules that are to our benefit. And if they do that, Indian law is really easy. Uh, whenever you hear a justice say, wow, this is really complex, or um, you know, the, the, the Congress seems to be going all over the place. That's when a justice is working through it and trying to find an outcome that they prefer rather than the outcome the law dictates. And um, hopefully with Indian law, with, and we saw it in McGirt, hopefully we'll see it in Brackeen and in Isleta, Dennis P., and then Castro Huerta. The text that the textualists say they look at is all supportive of tribal interests every single time in all of those cases. So if the tribes lost any of those cases, I guarantee you when I read the opinion, I'm going to see that they came up with a, a justification to get around the text that they didn't like as a matter of policy. Um, and when you have a six to three court, there's not money there, you're, the, if, and you, you just you have to cross your fingers and hope that they actually follow the law. Well, that's really interesting that you mentioned that when viewed under a strictly objective lens that uh, Indian law does not have to be as complicated as it so often is made out to be. Really fascinating. Um, Sarah, do you share Matthew's uh, optimism for Supreme Court Justice nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson? I mean, I do. I think it's always a little bit difficult to read the tea leaves in Indian country unless you happen to have a justice who has the really robust record, uh, which we were we had the benefit of with Justice Gorsuch. But typically, uh, 
people who come to the Supreme Court, wherever they come from, they often have little record on Indian issues. Um, so you're sort of really left having to look at their decisions and other types of cases that might mirror it. And it's just it's difficult. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an optimistic. I'm optimistic by nature. I think if you practice too much Indian law, you probably have to become optimistic or quit. Um, so I, I agree with the assessment that I think that she um, could really be a benefit to the court. Um, and I also think that what he also, what Matt also said, I think is true, which is that conservative um, and liberal justices can be sovereignty warriors. Um, so certainly, you know, it would be difficult to read the McGirt decision as anything but a, uh, you know, a, an opinion that really seemed to understand and get the, the sovereignty arguments and, and was very textualist and very conservative and also very favorable to the tribe. So my hope is that, you know, the court, whether it leans conservative or whether it leans in a more liberal fashion, really stays faithful to the legal arguments that we have when tribes' arguments are weighed fairly and objectively, tribes win. It is it is when tribal arguments are um, the, the logical arguments and the textualist arguments and the real legal arguments are set aside in favor of some policy outcome. That's when Indian country and Indian law generally begins to turn into something uh, that's very negative for Indian people. Okay. We're going to have to wrap up the show here in about another minute or so, but uh, Matthew, I wanted to give you a chance to just have the last word. Any other native legal issues that our listeners should be paying attention to in the coming year you want to talk about quickly? Absolutely. The Violence Against Women Act reauthorization statute is is pending right now, and uh, it's uh, got language in it that would expand tribal criminal jurisdiction over certain crimes, child abuse most notably, committed by non-Indians. This is an expansion of the 2013 statute that created special jurisdiction for domestic violence and intimate violence cases, and I think that's something that Indian countries should be pay, paying very close attention to. Okay. Really, really great show today. Again, talking U.S. Supreme Court, talking landmark rulings, talking Native issues, lots and lots of stuff on the dockets, on the uh, the order list for the U.S. Supreme Court that impacts Indian country. And folks, uh, that's all the time we have for today's discussion. And I'd really like to thank my guests today, Matthew Fletcher, Sarah Kostelik, and Sarah Hill for bringing us up to date on native legal issues that are on the order list during this current session of the U.S. Supreme Court. You're invited to join our live program again tomorrow. Really, really exciting show we have planned. We're going to be talking about hoops. So all of you basketball warriors out there in Native America, you definitely want to tune in. We're going to have some updates on some of the standout Native basketball teams and events going on right now. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening.
Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not gonna be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Program support from AmeriCorps. AmeriCorps members who serve in VISTA make a difference in the fight against poverty while earning money for college and gaining valuable skills. Rewarding service opportunities are available across America, focusing on economic opportunity, healthy futures, education, and more. It will change your life and the lives of others. Information at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.